Amen, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning. Turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John, as we begin uh, study through the letters of the Apostle John this morning, our first in the series. This morning we're going to look at chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, the prologue of this opening letter. In honor of God's word, uh, I want to invite everyone to stand. Let's read the passage together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, Lord, for your instructions to us from this, this uh, timely, uh, beautiful book. Father, we, we, uh, we, we need your word of love. We need your word of peace. The whole world is in chaos, it seems. Uh, the Middle East is at war again. And, and every time we, we turn on the TV, we see wars and rumors of wars. And everything you said that would happen in the last days uh, is our nightly news. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to really uh, cherish the fact that you are promising through your word that victory will be ours. And so we ask, Father, that as we study this book together, Lord, that it would be more than just simply another uh, book, textbook uh, of your word for us to shove into our heads as a, a good information. But Father, it would be a living and active word, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, Father, that, that we would be uh, pierced, pierced by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we often uh, joke around here that our church building is uh, held together by baling wire and duct tape, which is actually not far from the truth, I believe. It may be humorous to say about a church building, but it's really not a funny thing to say about uh, souls, uh, the souls that make up our church, uh, you and me. I am reminded of a report on a local Alaskan news channel that talked about a man, apparently this man attempted to cross a channel near Juneau on a, quote, homemade watercraft, which was described as, again, quote, the inflatable duct-taped craft, completed with a paddle, his dog, and the conspicuous lack of a life jacket. A, lo a local news uh, outlet started that while, quote, the weather on the scene was reportedly calm with nine mile per hour winds, a local Coast Guard crew still ended up coming to rescue the man when the makeshift boat started to fill with water. Go figure. 
Having deemed the craft unsafe, they transferred it and the man and his dog to nearby Douglas Harbor. The man's boat was an inflated raft that was literally patched together with duct tape. So this thing had holes in it already, and he decided to patch it with duct tape. Now, duct tape is, is great stuff, but apparently it's not great in, in water uh, to be used like that. And so he, he took this, this craft, and he trusted it with his life and with the life of his dog. Now, that's where I get angry, right? I mean, you want to go out there, fine, but you don't take that dog. And, and we think to ourselves, you hear a story like that, and you go, what are people thinking? You know, what in the world was he thinking? That's not a smart man. But let me tell you what is a thousand times more shocking than that. People who are hoping to cross the channel, the eternal channel, between earth and heaven, right, on a salvation, a homemade salvation that they have made of their own. And people do that all the time, a homemade salvation. In fact, I'd say the majority of people who fill our churches are, are, are betting their eternal destinies on a patchwork faith. Uh, that they hope will be just good enough to get them across the eternal divide. Just give me a cross. But when it comes to the assurance of our salvation, right, you don't want to bank on your eternity on, man, I hope, this, I hope I got this right. I hope I patched together enough that God will accept me and I can make it across. Now, when it comes to your assurance of salvation, God wants his children to have absolute confidence. Confidence that you were saved. Confidence that you know that you belong to him. 1 John, this is what uh, 1 John is about. In fact, 1 John, uh, if we're skipping ahead, looking backwards, 1 John 5, 13, John says why he wrote uh, this letter. He said, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now think about that, right? I, I write these things to you who believe, right? That you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That seems like, well, okay, that's all you know. But, but there are those who believe in the name of the Son of God who apparently are not assured of their salvation. And so for the truly saved, he says, I want you to know, without a shadow of a doubt, I want you to know that you have eternal life. Well, one of the, the major themes in the book of 1 John that you should, we will see together is this word know. K-N-O-W, right? The word know appears often in the book of 1 John. It doesn't appear 10 times. It doesn't appear 20 times. It doesn't appear 30 times. In five chapters, and really in four, because it doesn't begin till chapter 2, the word know is in 1 John 40 times. 
And so it's obviously, in fact, I took a pen and, and, and went through and I circled every time the word no is there and then went back and counted. It's a little shy. It's like 38 to be exact. I'm sure I've missed some. But 40 times in four chapters. So obviously that is the emphasis of First John. He wants us to know. Well, John also uses two different Greek words for what it means to know in this letter. So you have to designate, when you go through this, you have to discern which no he is referring to in order to better understand that. We'll do that all the way through this text. Well, let me give you kind of a, a, an idea up here on, at the front end uh, what these two words mean. Very significant, very important in the life of the church. The first one is the Greek word oida, oida, which means to see something. It means to perceive it. it. It means to know something in a rational way. Uh, the idea behind the word is that there are certain things that you can see and that you can inspect and examine and therefore cause you to know that this is true. So saving faith is not a blind faith. It's a rational faith. There are things that we can perceive about ourselves that will give us an assurance of our salvation. Oida. He wants us to know. That's what the word in 1 John 5, 13. I want you to know. I want you to rationally know that you are saved. I want you to have confidence in your mind. And so 1 John gives us uh, nine different tests, nine different tests in this short book of things we can perceive or things that we can know about ourselves to allow us to know that we have eternal life. The second word for know or knowing is gnosko. It's one of my favorite words. I remember it from Greek 101 because it just rolls off the tongue. Gnosko. It means to know in a relational way. So you have two words. You have to know in a rational way, but you also have the idea of knowing someone, knowing a person in a relational way. To know uh, Jesus, therefore, requires more than knowing just rational information about him. It is to know him personally. It is to enter into a relationship with him. And so it means I, I, I know about Oida, I know about Jesus, but Gnosko is I know Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. So uh, let me give you an example. In, in 1 John 5.20, John uses both of these words together in one verse. I think that's helpful for us to see the difference. 1 John 5.20 says this, and we know, that's Oida, we rationally know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know, right, that's gnosko, that we may know him, that we may personally know him who is true and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So, so we know these certain facts about Christ who has been sent to us, 
And that information leads us to know him in a personal way. Now, the reason that's so significant is because this is huge when it comes to understanding what genuine salvation actually is. Right? Because in our discipleship and in our, even our gospel presentation, we have the tendency to, to emphasize the rational over the relational. And so we, you know, say, well, you know, here's the gospel. Uh, here's five truths that you need to believe. Do you believe these things? Well, yes, I believe those things. That is a rational, yes, I believe those things. Therefore, well, then you must be saved. But it's not about just simply believing those things. You believe those things so that you may know Jesus personally, not just know the information. And in our church, man, that's, that's the way, uh, I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about American Christianity in general, uh, that, that discipleship has all been based on giving believers more and more and more information. Oida. You know, we want you to know all of this rational stuff. But we really, I think, have failed in the American church of helping uh, our, our people to, to walk with Jesus, to know Jesus. Right? We can tell you things you ought to believe, but do we tell you how to pray and, and how to commune with God? And so that's what 1 John is about. He wants us to know the right information so that we might know Jesus personally. So this is a huge understanding uh, and importance of 1 John. John says that the rational belief is never the goal in and of itself, that it is we know rationally so that we may know Jesus relationally. That's the point. How many people in our, our churches today think they're saved? Because they believe certain truths about Jesus. But they don't know him experientially. You can recite the gospel truth by truth and still not know Jesus. Think of the implications of, of that in, in so many people's lives. So, so we need to, to know that we know. First John. So from the beginning of this, this first epistle, epistle, John wants us to, to see that this Jesus has, first of all, made himself knowable. And that's absolutely huge. Look what he says in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So verses 1 through 4 of 1 John is what is called a prologue. It's an introduction uh, that sets the stage of the entire letter. I, I kind of think of it as a front porch back in the old house in the good old days when you had a front porch. You know, those, the front porch is, is kind of the entryway into the house. And so verses 1 through 4 is our, is our front porch and what a front porch it is. 
from the very first words of this great book, John's focus right out of the gate is Jesus. It's going to be Jesus, right? That which is from the beginning. Uh, that seems to be John's way. He does the same thing in his gospel, right? In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. It's a, a, an echo of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. So he says, that which was from the beginning. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. Right? We need to set right up front. You cannot have assurance unless you know that it's all about Jesus. Right? There is no salvation except in the one true Christ. I know there's a lot of stuff today. I know that's not real popular to say in this day and age. People say when you say that, well, that's intolerant. Well, let it be intolerant because there is only, according to Jesus himself, one way. And there, there will be many false Christs that come along, we're told, uh, by Jesus in the last days. And, and yet there's only one by which we can be saved. And so salvation is about knowing this, this one means of salvation. To know it rationally, to know him personally. And so salvation is about a real relationship with a real Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. This speaks of John's divine nature. Uh, Jesus' uh, divine nature. Jesus is God, and, and thus he is eternal. Before anything was, Jesus already was. Jesus didn't come into being at any point. He's always been. He's eternal. Before the creation of the world, Jesus was Jesus the eternal Son, the second member of the Trinity. Colossians says it like this about Jesus in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that He is the image of the invisible God, which means that He makes God visible. The firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that He was the firstborn as in the first person. It means firstborn means one with the authority in the household. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So John says we have experienced the eternal Son of God with our senses. <laughs> this is... This is, this is insane. He says, we, we have heard him, we have seen him, and we've touched him. We, we have laughed with him, we've eaten meals with him, and we've gone fishing with him. We've seen him do miraculous things. John, here goes, I've laid my head on his chest, I've heard his heart beat. What a stunning thing to say about God. We've heard him. We've, we've had conversations with him. In, in John's day, there was a, a, a heresy that was floating around called Gnosticism. You've probably heard of that before. Basically, what Gnosticism is, and that's what uh, a part of understanding 1 John is to understand Gnosticism because he's trying to refute that, that, that heresy Gnosticism was a Greek philosophy 
uh, that taught that basically the world is, is made up of a dualism. Dualism says there is the spiritual realm and there is the physical realm. And, and the physical realm is, is evil. And the spiritual realm is, is good. And so if you apply that to Jesus, the Gnostics taught that Jesus uh, could not have been an actual physical human being, but that he just simply appeared to be so. And the reason he couldn't possibly be one is because, well, if he was physical, all that's physical is evil, and therefore uh, Jesus could never have been physical. And so the, the Gnostics would have denied the incarnation of Christ. They would have denied the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, a, a, a human Jesus dying on a, on a real cross. They would have denied a physical bodily resurrection. So one of the greatest struggles we have with the assurance of our faith uh, is that we have been sold lies from a lot of different sources. Lies about Christ and lies about what he has accomplished. So John is making it clear that Jesus was not only divine, but in fact he was also very human. He was physically real. He was physically present. So right off the bat we see both the deity and the humanity of Christ. Right Now that whole Gnosticism thing, you know, that's not just simply an ancient heresy. That, that's been around and finds itself in a lot of spiritualities that exist today. You've got to be careful about this stuff. In our, in our day, uh, it's possible to make our faith so spiritual that it has no earthly value. Our, 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 our faith, according to the scriptures, our faith is lived out in real life. Right? We, we follow Jesus in the dirt and dust of this real human earthly life in these, these real human bodies. It's an embodied spirituality. Which means that, that Jesus is not just concerned about you know, our, our prayer life, but he wants to know and, and be involved in every area of life. Right? He, he, he's there and interested in our work life. He's there and interested in our in our education. He's there and interested in, in, in just the things that we do with our finances. He's, he's concerned and interested about every aspect of our life, the real nitty-gritty stuff. And, and so we don't come to church and do the spiritual thing and, and then leave here and leave Jesus in the spiritual building while we go out in the real world and do the real world stuff. Jesus is there too. Real Jesus. Real world. Now, uh, he was not only, John was not only dealing with the Gnostics, but he was also dealing with the Jews, right? And, and, and the Jews, when he says this stuff, it would have sounded outrageous to the Jewish ear. Think about it. Uh, we, we, have, we have heard him. We've had a conversation. It usually went like this. He told us stories. We asked him questions. He answered the questions with more stories. Sometimes we scratched our head. He was way out in left field a lot of times. But we just sat down and we would talk. You know, at night it was awesome because we would like have dinner and sit around campfire and talk. And the, and the Jews are like going, that's blasphemy. You can't, you, you don't do that with God. 
In fact, Exodus 20, 18 and 19 says it like this. Right? This is the, the Jewish view. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you, go, you speak to us. You go, you, you listen to him, you listen to him, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We don't want to hear from God because hearing from God is a death sentence. And here's John going, yeah, we, 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 we talked. We conversed. John says, yeah, we, we heard him. And then he says, our, our eyes have seen him. We, we saw him. What do you mean you saw him? You saw God? According to Exodus 33, verse 20, it says this, you cannot see my face. God says it. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And you're saying that you saw God. Yeah. Yeah. We saw him. We saw him. We saw him there at the dinner table. And then finally, John just goes berserk, and he tops it off with the inconceivable. Oh, and, and we've, we've touched him. We fizz. I laid my head on his chest. Now, to a Jewish ear, then that, that's too far, right? Because you go back to the, to the Jewish experience of God. You remember Uzzah? Remember the story of Uzzah? Right? Uzzah is walking beside the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, it's on a cart, which it wasn't supposed to be. Uh, ox kind of stumbles, and Uzzah's this guy who's got the unfortunate job of just basically walking next to the Ark. And it stumbles, and he reaches out to steady it. Because the one had fallen in the dirt, so he reaches out and steadies it. Dead. God kills him on the spot. That is the holiness of God. You can't touch his ark, but you can lay his, your head on his chest. That is ridiculous. And John says, yeah, we, we, have, we, have, we have heard him. We have seen him. We have even touched him. We went fishing with him. We hung out with him. We went to parties with him. Right? And, and the Jews going, how is any of that possible? How is that possible? Because this, this same God who is awesome in holiness wants us to know him. And so he sent us his one and only son that we can know him. He has come to us. That's the incarnation, right? Celebrities today, they walk around with, with uh, bodyguards all around them. The message is clear, right? The message is basically, I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm a big deal. You're dangerous. Therefore, keep your distance. Jesus, who is he's no celebrity, he is the, the, the living God. Jesus comes and he says, all who are weary... And heavy laden, come to me. Here I am. You can hear me. You can listen to me. I'll give you a hug. All who are tired of trying to measure up. All who are tired of trying to be good enough. All who are tired of, of never being accepted by all the right people. Come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Remember when... 
the disciples tried to be bodyguards for Jesus when the kids were coming? Hey, whoa, ho, ho, ho. Let's not bother the master. And Jesus is like, would you sit down and shut up? Let the little children come to me. I think of the woman at the well uh, who spent her days in such shame that she avoided all of the other women in her community. But she couldn't avoid Jesus. And Jesus shows up. He's got a divine appointment with her. And he tells her all he, he knows about her. And I know all about you. I know about your sin. I know that, that you cannot get your act together. And I know that you've gone through all these husbands. And I know you're living with a guy now. I know all of that. And do you remember what he said? He said, so you go from here. You go from here and you get your act together. And don't you ever talk to me again until you do. No. Absolutely not. He never says anything like that. He says, no, uh, what I have for you is living water. And I will give you living water. And Spider, you don't have to do anything except drink it. You just have to receive it, and you will find everything that your heart was made for. And then what does she do? The one who was afraid and ashamed. She beelines it into the middle of town at the busiest time of day, and she says, come here, a man who told me everything about me. Loves me anyway. You got to come here. You got to hear about Jesus. Look at verse 2 of 1 John. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The, the Son of God, the, the eternal one, the, the life was made manifest. It was made perceivable. Uh, it was made knowable. The one who has been with the Father for all eternity has made, been made manifest, been made knowable to us. John uses two verbs in the passage to express the, the mission of the early apostles. He says we testify about him and then we proclaim him. Well, the Greek word translated to testify means to experience or to witness for oneself. So he's not giving us secondhand information, right? He's going, no, we, we, we have, we've, we've touched him, we've, we've listened to him, we've seen him, right? It, it's a court word, a courtroom word, where a witness gives a testimony. Imagine a court uh, where the witness is called in. Uh, tell us your name. It's Bob. Uh, okay, Bob, uh, can, can you tell the jury what you saw? You know, it's like a murder trial. And he goes, well, well, I wasn't, I, was, I didn't really see anything. I didn't really see anything. I wasn't actually there. Well, Bob, what are you doing here then? Oh, well, you see, uh, I saw this murder show. And, and, and I saw on the news, I read this, and it, it sounded real familiar. It's kind of like what I saw on that show. So I thought, well, I'll just tell you what I saw on the show. And you're going, Bob, get out of here. No, Bob is not experienced. I don't know who Bob is. I just made that up. But he has not experienced the, 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 the reality. He is not able to proclaim what he hasn't experienced. He can't give a testimony to it. Only when we encounter Jesus 
are we able to proclaim what we have actually encountered? So it's our personal encounter that gives authority to our proclamation. Right? We're, we're not like actors selling products that we don't use. And so that's how, how salvation actually works in reality. Right? We, we, excuse me, we, we uh, experience the God who exists in unapproachable light and he transforms us, we experience that, we become the light of the world. We walk in the light. Right? You can be free of the darkness of not knowing God. Every time a person is radically saved, it is because the God of heaven has made Jesus manifest to us. We enter into a relationship with a, a real person. He's made manifest. He's made real. Uh, we have a testimony of an, an actual encounter. He's not uh, given simply a set of doctrines or a make-believe friend. Uh, Jesus is not just simply a historical character tucked away in dusty manuscripts. Right? We, we have a real walking, talking, listening relationship with a real person. Jesus, the real Lord, the risen Lord. Right? We enter into a relationship with a real person. Jared Wilson says it like this, the reality of friendship with Jesus depends on a serious reckoning with the reality of Jesus. Most of us, Christians included, however, have grown accustomed to conducting a relationship with the idea of Jesus, but Jesus is a real person. So it's not knowing and having an idea, it's, it's, it's a reality. And so, you know, you might push back at this point, and, and hopefully in your head you're wrestling with this, and you might push back and say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but there's a huge difference, right, between what John had and what I have. Because we can't hear him audibly. We can't see him physically. And we certainly can't touch him physically. And, and so we, we go, well, yeah, John's able to say that because he had this, this reality that, that we don't have. But I need to remind you of this, that John did not write this when Jesus was walking around on planet Earth. He wrote it long after the resurrection. In fact, when John wrote this, he was an old man with a big, long beard because that's how I picture John, right? And, and so he's, he's, he's writing well after the resurrection. And Jesus said this face to face to his disciples. It, it, he's not speaking. He says everything in the past tense. You know, I, well, we've, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. That's all past tense. But then he turns around and he says, and we have fellowship with God and with his son. That's now, that's current. And so, yeah, he's, he's experienced that, but now he's experiencing it still, even though Christ is not physically with him. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but I, if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus said to John and his other disciples, look, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
How is that an advantage? Because there's something better than a relationship that's marked by the five senses. Uh, it's called the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ in you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, so we can know Jesus even more intimately than John did when he was physically walking around with Jesus. Now buckle your seatbelt and look with me at verse 3. This is a prologue, y'all. I was just reading this. And I go, you got to be kidding. This is unbelievable. Look at verse 3. Now that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you may too have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer called the church, this is my favorite term for the church, he called it the fellowship of the burning heart. Isn't that awesome? The fellowship of the burning heart. And, and here in this passage, we, we see two different fellowships that have one and the same source. The word fellowship. Right? What do you think of? Potluck? This is a whole different ballgame, right? We have these two different fellowships. First, he says, we, we proclaim this Jesus that we have experienced so that you might have fellowship with us. That means fellowship in the church. Our, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. That's fellowship with the triune God. There, there, there are these two fellowships that are true of every believer. Uh, these two fellowships are two sides of the same coin. Jesus summed up the, the entirety of the law in loving God and loving people, didn't he? And we all fall short of that. The gospel, by contrast, empowers us to love God because we, he first loved us and to love people, which we could never do on our own. So this gospel opens up this, this new life, this new reality. And John says it like this in chapter 4. We'll get there someday. He says, if anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So how do we see God? How do we experience the vision of God? When we look and see one another. Not that one another is God, but God is in us. He dwells in us. right? We can know Jesus personally, but never privately. Right? To enter into a relationship with Jesus. Listen, to enter into a relationship with Jesus always results in community. Always. And it takes God to love God, and it takes God to love others, to love one another. When we're saved, our hearts are, are kindled with a burning fire, with affections for God, and for one another. We are the fellowship of the burning heart. Right? Uh, the word John used when he talks about fellowship is the word koinonia. Have you heard that word before? 
Yeah, we talk about that. Fellowship is koinonia. It, it means a whole lot more than a potluck. It, it means a common life, not just occasional gathering. It, it means, it also means, and this is my favorite definition, to participate. So we participate in a relationship with God that spills over into relationships with fellow believers. We participate in one another's lives. So when I just come to church and kind of close everybody off, we, 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 we have this, this family. It's what it means. And you'll see this all the way through 1 John and all of these tests about if we're truly saved and how many of them have to do with whether or not we're loving one another. So Jesus' friends become our friends. That's how it works. And that's usually people we might never have been friends with outside of church or people we actually open up our lives to. John says our, our fellowship, and this is where it gets insane. He says, you can have fellowship. You, you will be welcomed and included into to us and to this fellowship. And the us part we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, let me tell you what he's saying there, because it's stunning. He's saying, man, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son uh, for all eternity. The Father and the Son have been one. And the Spirit is, is part of the, the binding of, of the Father and the Son. We become uh, one. He says that we can have fellowship in that eternal reality, right? That we can participate in, in the same Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that's existed for all eternity. That's called fellowship. That's amazing. Most of the time, right, think about this, most of the time when you have a really close-knit group of friends, right, you're kind of jealous over it. And you're kind of particular about, you know, you don't just let people in to your circle of besties. Oh, hey, I invited so-and-so. Oh, really? I thought it was just us, you know. The Father, the Father has invited us in to the relationship he has with his son. Right? Uh, when I think of that, I, I have a special relationship with my son and daughter that no one else has. Right? Very, very special. Now, you can come and hang out with the three of us. You can, but you're, you're, you're not, you know, blood's thicker than water. And so they're going to take a precedent, and there's always going to be just kind of, you're always going to feel like you're on the outside because you're not blood in that circle between father, son, and daughter. And yet within the Trinity, God's going... Yeah, come in. Come in. You are, you are welcome. You're welcome. The church father, Maximus, the confessor. Why don't we have names like that anymore? Maximus, the confessor, he, he coined a word for the Trinity. He called it the, peri, the perichoresis. Uh, it's a Greek compound word. Peri means uh, around, to be in the round. Choresis means to go. In other words, to go around. 
uh, you hear the word choreography in that. In, in other words, it's a dance. It's a dance. And, and basically, Maximus the Confessor says, there has been this divine dance, Father, Son, and Spirit, been dancing in this union for all eternity, and we're invited to cut in. That's unreal. He says the Trinity is a divine dance that we're invited to join. And God beckons us. Hey, get in on this. Right? Come and dance with us. He, he opens his arms. It's a, it's a welcoming community. God is a welcoming community. And we proclaim Jesus. And John says we proclaim him so that you can have fellowship with us. Right? And we're in the dance. So... To have fellowship with us means you get to join in in the dance. That's community. That's, commu that's church-wide community. No one, no one should ever feel alone. No one should ever feel left out or unaccepted because we're children of a welcoming God. Our, our greatest witness to the world is, is not rational, it's relational. We do not offer the world an argument, but the best thing we have to give to the world is a community. The world will know that you're my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Our greatest apologetic is a loving community. And especially in our day, Good grief. In our day, everybody's divided. Everybody's constantly at everybody else's throat. Everybody's canceling one another. You can't, I, can't, I can't hardly stand to get on social media anymore because it's just vitriol of hatred just spewing everywhere, and half of it's from Christians. And I think to myself, the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what the church is. That, that's community. And so the church is a welcoming community. It's a welcome. Get in on this. Get in on this. It's not an exclusive group, right? Of going, that's just us, you know. And you better, you better check the boxes or you're going to remain on the outside of the circle. That's not reflecting the welcoming God that we're a part of. And so he says, man, we, we, when you believe this, you are, have a fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with Father and Son. It's amazing. And so no wonder he concludes like this, and we're writing all of this. The reason, and I don't even know who we is. I guess he's talking about, you know, it's, it's John's letter. He's including all of the apostolic authority. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy, so that our joy may be complete. This one cracks me up, man, because studying this, when you study this kind of stuff and you have to read all these commentaries, theologians love to debate. And there's a huge debate on this one. The debate is, so is, is John saying in the Greek that we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete? Or is it your joy 
may be complete because really the word uh, could go either way. <sighs> okay, are you kidding me? What did he just say? What did he just say? He says, you're able to come in with us and therefore you and me and us are one now with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's both. Congratulations, that's, that's exactly right. What is he saying? You go, well, which is it? What do you mean, which is it? He, he's, he's basically saying our joy comes from your joy. And when you enter into this thing and are filled with joy, then our, our joy measurement increases. There's no, there's no concept anywhere of going, wow, too many people in this church. You know, there's new people coming in and they're ruining the fellowship. No, it's like okay, our joy is getting, we exist for the joy of others. And when the others receive their joy because they're knowing God, our joy goes up. You can never find your joy by trying to go after your own joy. Amen. So if you want to find your joy, invest in the joy of others and you will be joyful. And so that's exactly what he's saying, right? You want your joy to increase? Go proclaim Jesus to the joyless. And go watch some joyless soul be transformed and changed radically with the gospel. There's a passage of scripture um, that we're all familiar with that I think kind of summarizes this whole thing. And uh, one of my favorite, I think my favorite perhaps metaphor, biblical metaphor of salvation is adoption. Yeah, just beautiful picture. And there's this passage uh, that says in the book of Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and we use that verse all the time. That's like 101 evangelism training. Right? Have you, are you a sinner? Oh, of course you are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever thought and asked the question, what does the second part of that, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? What does that even mean? Well, it means this. It means that we were made, we were created in the image of God. And God is glorious. So we were made to be glorious. Right? The Bible says, uh, talking about the, the sun and the moon and the stars, and he says that the, the stars declare what? The glory of God. Well, we were made like that. We were made to shine like stars. We were made to give God glory. We were made to mirror his glory back to him. And yet, when the fall took place, then everything changed. We changed in our very nature. We, we no longer uh, look like the glory of God. We no longer represent, we no longer are a mirror that shines forth the glory back to God. In fact, the Bible says 
that we have become children of the devil. Now you may think, well, that's, that's extreme. Well, that's what the Bible says. You're either children of God or children of the evil one. There's no in-between. And so it says that all who are fallen have become children of the devil, which means that we reflect his, his inglorious nature. We're inglorious. I mean, Satan is a liar. He's selfish. He was all about his own glory. He wanted to sit on the seat of highest authority over God. That's what we reflect. That's who we are. We're selfish to the core. And yet God's glory always wins. It's always dominant. And so he comes and he says, you know what? I have a plan. I'm going to redeem their glory. I'm going to redeem them back to the image that they were created to be. And so he enters into Satan's orphanage. And he looks around. And he sees the meanest, the foulest, the biggest snot-nosed kid in the orphanage. And he says, I want that one. You're like, you got that one. I want that one. Go, okay. Well, the price is mighty high, the evil one says. And Jesus says, I will pay... I will, I will pay the ransom to set him free. And check this out. He says, I will pay the, with the blood of my real son to adopt him. That doesn't make any sense, right? I, I will take the blood of my, my own, my true, eternal son in exchange for that foul, snotty-nosed punk of an orphan. That's what he does. It's incredible. And then, when the orphan kid finds out, when he finds out what the father has done, all of a sudden, everything in him changes. Everything in him is transformed. He's going, what? Yeah, I, I, you're mine. I've adopted, I, I, I bought you with the blood of my son. And everything's changed within him. You know what we call that? What the Bible calls that? It's called repentance. We repent. We don't repent in order to be adopted. We repent because we are. We are loved. That's why we don't, we're not saved by repentance. We repent because we're saved. And in our repentance, we're just going, I, I never, ever, ever want to be that snotty-nosed brat anymore because I am no longer abused. I'm no longer under the thumb of this evil, dark orphanage. I've been set free. Amen. And I'm loved. And everything changes because we've been adopted and so no wonder he says man we're writing this thing because because you, that snotty nose kid that's you and that's me that's all of us that's all of us and and you have been included in on this thing 
You've been brought into the Father and the fellow. You're in our fellowship. You're in our family now. Welcome. Welcome. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for this beautiful reality uh, that we have not just simply been saved because we believe these these five truths but we enter into this relationship uh, with this welcoming community and this welcoming god and we're brought into the midst of this this new family everything changes everything's changed it's who we are and, and so i pray father that we would begin today and in the weeks ahead to truly examine ourselves to make sure that that's the reality Lord, that we haven't just kind of said a prayer someday, so one day way back, and, and nothing's changed, nothing's transformed, our hearts are not warmed. There's no repentance. But God, that, that we see the reality of what our salvation means. We're confident, and we know that we have eternal life. So, Father, if that's a struggle for us right now, Lord, your, your word tells us that the reason that John wrote this letter is for, for believers in Christ who believe in the Son of God, that they might know that they have eternal life and for us to have confidence. And I would imagine that it's also there so that if the confidence is, is false, we have a false assurance that we would come to realize that as well and that we might truly be saved, truly be born again. So I, I pray, Father, that your, your work and your spirit through your word would be done in the midst of these, this fellowship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me.